0: Well, this morning we'll be continuing in our series, Glory and Grace, a series about the church for the church. And last week, Pastor Luke preached on the importance of corporate worship, especially that gathering and the purpose is to worship God. This week we'll be continuing with part two, which is going to focus primarily on how God's word, the scriptures, is at the center of all we do when we gather here as a church. One thing I want to mention, and I think it's worth noting, is that all the things that we talk about here today about God's word could be applied during the week a million times over. During the week, you have thousands, if not millions of times to worship God and to hear his word and to apply it in the hallways of your homes, in the disciplining of your children, in discussing things with your spouse. And so I do want to acknowledge that there are plenty of opportunities to worship and to hear God's word during the week, but we are going to primarily focus on this special gathering where we gather together in a unique way as God's people to worship him. And so we'll be in Nehemiah 8, verses 1 through 12 this morning. If, you're, have you, if you have a Bible, please turn there. If you don't, there are Bibles below the chairs, so if you find one, and you can turn to the passage, which is on page 403 in that Bible. And we're going to do something a little bit different this morning because it goes along with the passage. Please stand with me as we read God's word from Nehemiah 8 1 through 12. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Milkiah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hannah, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and spend portions, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words of that were declared to them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for this beautiful Sunday morning that we get to gather as your people and hear your word. We get to hear it read. We get to hear it sung. We get to hear it proclaimed. And and we get to gather around it, Lord. And I pray this morning that you, as we sung, would reveal your glory to our hearts so that our hearts would want nothing more than Christ. And so, Father, we ask for your help now as we, as we open your word, open our ears, that we would listen attentively and that you would conform us to your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, I think the best way to get a hold of this context, of this passage, is to consider, consider the story of an unfaithful wife. Now, I know that this isn't the most pleasant-sounding thing, but this is a picture that God uses in his word for his people, Israel, when when they went away from him. So I want you to picture this morning a wife, though, who had taken the vows of marriage. She sought out other men instead. Perhaps at first she hid it, but before long, she didn't really even care to do that. I'm talking about the kind of wife that you see in the book of Hosea, if you're familiar with that book. And if you can just put yourself in the shoes of this husband, just imagine the heartbreak of this poor husband. Here a man had set his affections on this one woman and had devoted his everything to love her for what he thought would be a lifetime, but instead she betrayed him, she deceived him, she made him look like a fool, and eventually she ran off to who knows where. Now, fast forward a couple years, and out of the blue one day, this estranged wife turns up at the husband's doorstep. Tired and tattered from being used and abused, she comes back to the only man that ever truly loved her. And all she can do is confess her unfaithfulness and beg him to take her back. Now, what you'd expect in the scene, you'd expect this husband to be angry. You'd expect him to say, get lost. You destroyed my life. But instead, he invites her in. And as she enters their house, the house that used to be theirs together, to her surprise, he had kept their handwritten marriage vows framed on the wall where he had had, had nailed them years ago. She goes into the living room, and on the wall, she sees that their wedding pictures are still Up on the walls. And as she looks down at his hand, she notices that this wedding ring is still on his finger. And as she begins to plead with him to take her back, She doesn't have to do much of that at all because he opens his arms and he welcomes her back. And from there, he takes the vows that he had written years ago off the wall and he reads them to her, recommitting his love for her, recommitting to be in a covenant where he loves her and her alone. And not only that, but he adds that he will forgive her wrongs. He will never look upon her um, according to what she had done wrong. He will never treat her according to that. And he even commits to look upon her the way that he did when they first fell in love. He only asks that she commit to loving him alone. This is essentially what's happening in this text in Nehemiah chapter 8. Israel had been unfaithful to God. They started out just toying with idols, and before long, they had all out abandoned God and his covenant. And this led to God handing them over to their sin which takes them into captivity among foreign people. And after years of this, eventually they cried out, and God welcomed them home. He again would be their God, and they would be his people. And just as the husband in our story had welcomed his wife back, renewing the covenant of marriage, here in this passage, God has welcomed his people home, and he has gathered them together to restate his covenant love and his covenant promises. And in this passage, because we see God's word drive everything in the gathering, it's a great passage to look at as we consider how God's word drives everything we do together in corporate worship. God's word in corporate worship is how God is revealed to us. It's how our sin is confronted. And God's word directs us in our hearts to the good news of God's redemption in Jesus Christ. Now, right at the beginning of the scene of this passage, It opens with Israel seeking God at his word. They aren't gathered in an attempt to justify their behavior or to make excuses, but rather they throw themselves upon the mercies of God and they want to hear from him. They've gathered to listen to God and they know just where they can hear from him. It says in verse one that they ask Ezra to bring forward God's word and to read it. And the text says that as the word was brought forth, the people all stood in honor of it. This act says something about their view of scripture. Now, it may seem silly that people would stand for some book. I mean, if you think about the times in your life you've stood to honor something, if it was someone who was worthy of honor and praise. They had been a hero. They had done something brave. You stood to honor a person. And it's just really silly to think about us standing to honor the latest book. Or maybe you just, it would be so silly to picture in your head right now the latest cookbook that's been released being paraded down the street in the mobile with the glass bulletproof case around it, and everyone's standing for it. That's silly, right? And my point is this, that the Israelites weren't standing because it was a book with paper or a scroll at that time. They were standing because it was God's word. And God's word is an extension of God himself. It says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that all scripture is breathed out by God. When we read the scriptures, it is God speaking to us. If you want to hear God speak to you, open up the Bible, he will speak to you. That is how he speaks to his people and he uses his voice being revealed through that to reveal himself, his character, his attributes, his glory. And so this scene is much like a medieval movie where the king's servants come out with trumpets and they announce the king's messenger, they open the scroll, and everyone stands to hear the message of the king. Here in this text, the king of the universe was preparing to speak to his people. And not only does Israel stand for the scriptures, but we see that God's word is front center and it's elevated above the people. The text says that the scriptures are placed out before all the people, high above them on a wooden platform that was made for this occasion. And and, and the primary concern of all the people, from the leaders all the way down from those standing in the congregation, is hearing God speak from the scriptures. And notice in this passage that God's word is not some small little snippet that's added to a a, a service of jokes and feel-good messages. It's the main event. It says they started in the morning, and they read and taught until midday. It's read with an emphasis on clarity, and the teachers explain what it means so that there is understanding there's a, there's a good chance in verse 8, it says that they gave sense to the passage. It's a good chance that because they were in exile for so long in a foreign land, those children that had been born there and raised there, there's a good chance they never learned their native tongue. So when they came back, they may have been translating the text. There's basically two schools of thought. One is they were doing that. The other was simply just that they're emphasizing, again, that they were explaining it so it could be understood. But either way, it's very clear that the text is not only being read, it's being explained with an emphasis so all the people would understand what God is saying. The biblical pattern of preaching and teaching is reading and explaining the Bible. Here, Ezra, though he's a prophet of God, he does it here. He opens the Bible to read the text of God's word. Much of the apostles' teaching, though they as well were prophets of God, was, was taking scriptures, opening them up, and explaining them to the people. Jesus Christ himself, the word of God in the flesh, when he rocked around in his ministry, he read the word and taught from it. He spoke the word, and he taught from passages, most often that already existed in the, New, in the Old Testament. If God reveals himself through the scriptures, then it's important that we allow him to be heard and understood. And so this is why our gathering for corporate worship, it's not only saturated with scripture, but we build everything we do on the scriptures. We begin the service by looking for God to reveal himself at the reading of his word in the call to worship. In our songs, we sing God's word or themes from God's word so that God would reveal himself to us as we sing to one another. Our time of giving is driven by the scriptures. We read about this generous God who gave his only son so that we would be reminded of the calling to be generous so that his name would be proclaimed here and among the nations. And our preaching, just like we see in the text, focuses on reading, explaining, and calling people to obey God's word. Today, that is what theologians call expository preaching. I think what they did is they basically took the idea of Nehemiah 8 and summarized it by by giving these definitions. Um, But Mark Dever defines expositional preaching this way. He says it's preaching in which the main point of the biblical text is being considered, that's being considered becomes the main point of the sermon being preached. David Helm, who is also a trainer of many expositors, writes, Expositional preaching is empowered preaching that rightfully submits the shape and emphasis of the sermon to the shape and emphasis of the biblical text. Simply put, what we aim to do in preaching and teaching is to let the Bible speak right? As preachers of God's word, our job is to step aside and let God speak through his word. And we want to make it clear. We want to help give understanding, but we want to let the Bible speak. This is the preaching method we see in the scriptures, and it's not new and cool. It's, it's the old way of doing things. It doesn't require a preacher with a Hollywood personality who can stand up and do stand-up comedy and tell feel-good stories. Thank God, because I don't have the ability to do that. Um, it doesn't require video clips or smoke machines. It just requires that we open up the Bible, we read it, we explain it, and we urge people to obey it. And this is the old way. And this is how God works. And so by faith, We build our worship services on the word of God, and we trust that as we let the Bible speak, God is going to reveal himself to us, and he's going to conform our hearts to God himself. And so if every time God's word is opened, read, sung, prayed, or preached, it's an opportunity for us to hear from God. If this is how God speaks, I want to ask you this morning, are you listening On Sunday mornings, when we gather together, are you listening for God's word? Do you come to church on Sunday expecting that God is going to speak to you and God is going to change you? Like I said, this is not a casual thing. It's not sitting down to watch Netflix so we can have a good laugh, eat some popcorn, and maybe make fun of the wardrobe of certain characters. This is coming together to hear the God of the universe who created everyone and everything is to hear him speak and to be changed by him. And so I'd encourage you to consider this this weighty thing that each Sunday, God is addressing you. He's speaking to you. Listen. And I want to urge you this morning to turn from any distractions that prevent you from hearing God's word on Sunday mornings. Maybe it's you need to hear, stop, stop focusing on the preacher or the worship leader and listen to God's word. You may need to hear, stop critiquing every little detail of the service and how it's not to your taste and open your ears to listen for the word of God. Maybe you need to hear to stop focusing on the list of things that's waiting for you at home or the conflicts you have to go into the world and go back into, but whatever it is, stop being distracted by those things. And, and just like in the passage, it says that their ears were attentive to God's word. Open up your ears. God is speaking to you. How much more important is that than the clothes I'm wearing that maybe don't match because I'm colorblind or what the worship leader is wearing or anything else? God's word is the focus. God's word is the need. God's word is going to reveal him to us. And so whatever it is that distracts you, stop coming in with a mindset that's preventing you from from having God speak to you in this place. He's here talking to you every time we open up the word and we read it and we teach and we sing it and we pray and we proclaim it. God has revealed himself through his word. And just think about how gracious he is that he has called you to himself, and placed you in a, in a church where you get to have his word piped in directly to your ears in about six different ways every single Sunday morning. Praise God that he has revealed himself and called us into a church where it continues to be revealed Sunday after Sunday. Shifting gears just a little bit, one of my greatest weaknesses is the snooze button. And I'm guessing there's others out here as well where the snooze is a weakness, but for me when in the morning when it's especially now that it's getting colder I want nothing more to just stay under my warm blankets and to hit the snooze button and to just disappear from the world for just give me another 8 minutes or whatever your snooze is set to and what I what I need to do is I need to set my alarm across the room because in that time that my alarm goes off and I have to get up into the cold and walk across the room I there's enough sense in my head, I wake up enough where I know that it's worth getting out of bed to serve my family, to pray, to seek God at his word, and to do what he's called me to do. But if I just stay in bed and hit the snooze, I'm not even going to be woken enough by this alarm that's made to, to confront me in my sleep and to cause me to rise and serve the Lord in the day. And so Israel had gotten into trouble because basically they had hit the snooze button. God had graciously given them the alarm of his word to confront their sleepy hearts, but they stopped listening. At first, it was kind of ignoring it, putting it off. And after a while, it was like they took it and it's almost like they took the alarm, they whipped it against the wall and it busted and they stomped on it and it was done and it it went silent. And it led them into experiencing the discipline of the Lord. But here in Nehemiah 8, we see that they've been brought back and their desire is now to come under God's word and they're graciously confronted by God's word. Where God is revealed, so God is revealed through his word. Where God is revealed, we are confronted by glory. And what we see in verses 9 through 11 is that at seeing God's glory and being confronted with that compared to who they were, it says that the people wept, they mourned, and they grieved at the hearing of God's word. God revealing himself led them to be confronted by their sin. And they're such a mess that the priests have had to calm and quiet them, just like a mother does a little baby. And just like... Israel our hearts are weak and we're prone to wander we easily are deceived we're quick to place our trust in the shiny things of the world and we're bent towards serving our our own purposes and ourselves we make idols out of just about anything yet God has given us his word and like a mirror it shows us who we really are. And it doesn't show us who we are in comparison to our neighbors and all the people around us so that we can get in line and figure out who's the most righteous and who's the least, because no matter what, we're automatically going to look at all those people down the line that we see as less righteous than us, and we're going to say, we're doing pretty good. No, God shows us ourselves in the mirror of God's word so that we can be confronted by God's glory. The almighty God of the universe whose love is perfect, whose patience is perfect, who is righteous and good, and all the things that he is that make up his beauty and his glory. We are confronted by that. And just like Israel, when we're confronted by God's glory, it should be It should should turn us from serving ourselves to help us realize that we're not worthy to be at the center of the universe, and it should cause us to turn to serving the one who is. It should break our hearts that at any moment we've thought that we were the center of the universe and cause us to turn to God who is worthy to be served. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We always talk about interpreting God's word, but as we see in this passage, God, God's word is really what interprets us as it's read, and it shows who we are compared to God, and it points us to a greater glory that's worthy for us to pursue. And as we see in Nehemiah 8, one of the places that God uses to confront us with his word, and there are many, like I said, we could talk about all those places in everyday life where you are confronted by God and his word, but one of the places that we see in Nehemiah 8, Nehemiah 8 is in corporate worship. And what I want you to see this morning is that everything we do as a church is built around this idea of hearing God's word so that God is revealed and we are confronted by his glory, which causes us to turn to worship him and to serve him who is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. Our whole gathering is laid out in a way that wrong beliefs, values, and desires are held up against God's word and graciously confronted by God's glory, starting with the call to worship. And here's an example of a passage we may read for a call to worship. This is from Psalm 9, 1 through 2. It says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. this passage. We intentionally have scriptures like this read when we enter the sanctuary to start our service so that our eyes are turned from ourselves to God's glory. And God's word does just that. And so perhaps Sunday, I know how Sunday mornings are. We have six kids at home. It's usually my wife getting them ready and I come here and I get the ease of just being taken care of myself. But I know how it is to come in distracted, distraught, and your mind is elsewhere and it's not on worshiping the Lord. That is why we have Scripture calling us to worship. It's a call to worship. It's a call to hear God, the God of the Scriptures calling you to worship his superior glory. And so maybe you come in and you're just feeling ungrateful. You're wondering where God is at in your life and you hear the word of God calling you to give thanks to the Lord with your whole heart and to recount all of his wondrous deeds. What deeds? Well, let's start with the fact that you have breath going going in and out of your lungs. The fact that Christ came and died on a cross so that you could be forgiven of your sins. The fact that he has given you the Holy Spirit in you to cause you to persevere and to have strength and to illuminate his word. And the fact that you have his word at your fingertips and you can hear from him at any moment that's just a small fraction of the wondrous deeds that you could think about as you recount those in the call to worship that could prepare your hearts to turn from your vain glory to God's glory so that you're prepared to rejoice in the Lord. So I would encourage you to not hit the snooze button on the call to worship. Again, I have lots of kids. I understand Mom's coming in late because there's a dirty diaper right when it's time to come. Every Sunday never fails. I get that, but I would encourage you as far as you can to come and be present for the call to worship because God's word is living and active, and it's calling your heart to worship at this time. So be here if you can be listening. And from, from the call to worship in our worship services, we go into singing wonderful truths from God's word about who he is and what he has done. And perhaps you come, again, your heart's not there yet. You heard the call to worship and you're just not there yet. Songs are another way that we proclaim God's word so that our hearts can be turned to him in worship. And so I want you to consider just one verse of the song that we sang this morning, and, and, and really thinking about this passage and this message, it really caused my heart to rejoice in Christ and worship this morning. The song, Come Praise and Glorify. Listen to this. Come praise and glorify our God, the Father of our Lord. In Christ he has, in heavenly realms, his blessings on us poured. Again, perhaps you came in this morning wondering where God is. And, and the beautiful thing is that it, here God's people are singing these wonderful truths from Ephesians chapter 1 that God has poured out all of his heavenly blessings on you in Jesus Christ. And what it's saying in that passage is that he hasn't withheld one blessing that he's given to you in the heavenlies. There's not one that he could have given you that he's holding back. It says in Ephesians 1, he has poured them all out on you. And as you hear people singing this to you, you should think about the word of God and think about what God has done and, 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 and have your hearts directed toward God and his glory. And perhaps you, the same uh, uh, verse here, perhaps you came in this morning feeling frustrated with family. Perhaps your family has never really been loving toward you or perhaps they've... They've distanced themselves from you. Listen to these beautiful words in that song that says, For pure and blameless in his sight he destined us to be, and now we've been adopted through his Son eternally. Again, that's a promise from Ephesians chapter 1 that says, God in love, though you were a sinner, has, a, has come for you. He set his affections on you. And he came and saved you, in his son Jesus Christ, and called you to himself so that he would be your perfect father in heaven. And so that he would call you into this church family where we would all encourage each other. And one of the ways we do that is by proclaiming these wonderful truths to one another about who God is and what he has done. For me, there's nothing like having a little one standing next to me in worship who's belting out truths about God. Because if my heart isn't there so often, I hear this little voice, the heart of a child worshiping God, and it directs my heart. It reminds me of how worthy God is to be praised, and I rejoice in him. So I would encourage you to think about this you listening to God's word being sung? Yes, we're singing to God, but one of the beautiful things that we're doing is we're also singing these truths to one another, so that we are proclaiming them to one another and encouraging one another. Are you singing for your brothers and sisters? Are you singing for your King, and are you listening to God's word? He is revealing Himself to you. He is screaming to you in song. Are you listening? Another part of our service that I— after first service, someone came up to me and said, you know, I've never heard anyone talk about the benediction ever. And so another part of our service is the benediction. And believe it or not, this is not intended to be background noise for those who are making a beeline to go out for brunch. This is actually an important part of our service. This is another opportunity for God's word to be read. And so it's it's not a prayer, which I think oftentimes people think it's a prayer. It's actually— the reading of God's word, specifically blessings he has recorded in scripture. Okay? So as as the pastor stands up to read God's word in the benediction, he's reading blessings or promises to you that are yours. These are promises that you can claim that are, are yours in Christ. Okay? And so if you just beeline out and you ignore this time, you're missing out on a chance to have your heart encouraged to see God yet again and to be leaving in a way that that you have your eyes fixed and focused on God and his goodness. You'll notice that the pastor will often raise his hand when he reads the benediction. Um, You can see Aaron doing that as he's commanded to read this blessing to his people. In in Leviticus 9.22, it says that Aaron lifted his hand toward the people and he blessed them. And we see in Luke 24, 50 that Jesus, when he blesses his disciples, it says, and Jesus led them out as far as Bethany and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. The blessing that we often read, we do, there are several, there are many in scripture that you could see in the epistles and the Old Testament all over the place. But one that we often go to is number six. And it really does remind us of many great promises that we have in God. And though it was originally intended for Israel, The beautiful thing is that in Christ we have those blessings all the more because of how glorious he is. And so here's the blessing that we read typically over you, the people of God. It's from Numbers 6, 22 through 27. And here's what it says. And I'm going to read a little bit around it to give it some context. But the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel, You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Do you see some of the sweet promises and blessing that are in that passage? If you stay here and you soak up these blessings, these truths from the word of God, you will see that God has shown his face upon you. And when it talks about God shining his face upon you, it's meaning God's glory shining upon you, that he has revealed himself to you, and his glory is just beaming out over you, okay? And so in that, we have seen God. We have seen his glory. We have seen that he is worthy of worship, and then it says, um, may he give you peace. And as Christians, so, so he had brought them back into the land. He had made the old covenant with them. And they had peace and security. And yet how much more do we have peace and security in Christ? That Christ purchased our peace with his own blood on the cross. And, and in the end, it says, um, so shall they put my name upon the people of of Israel. And so this blessing is a reminder, bestowing these truths about who God is on you so that it soaks into your heart and you leave with God on your heart, in your mind, ready to go out and serve him. And so because God works powerfully through his word being read, the benediction can shape his people. And I would encourage you to be here, to listen to it. Again, it's not just background music or background sounds so that you can get out of here, I would encourage you to stay, to stand, to look up to the cross and remember these beautiful blessings that are ours in Christ and to be strengthened and to know that God is for you. And we could go on and on about how God's word is, is positioned in the service to Um, confront our hearts with glory in our giving time, in the Lord's Supper, in our prayer time, and of course in the preaching, but I hope that you're seeing that today. Um, But the point is that we need God's word held up before us so that we can be conformed to the image of God as we see his glory. In Nehemiah 8, God's people, it says they basically were cut to the heart when God's word revealed their sin. But the the beautiful thing about this text is it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with them weeping and mourning and crying, but it ends rather with celebration. It ends with the good news for God's redeemed. And so I want you to hear these last two verses again in Nehemiah 8, 10 through 12. It says, then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing. Why? Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. God's word cut them to the heart, exposed their sin, but pointed them to this great God who had redeemed them and led them to leaving, rejoicing, and singing, and celebrating. In Nehemiah, God had acted in a mighty way to bring Israel back to himself. He had redeemed them The temple being rebuilt shows that he was there to dwell with them. The walls that had been constructed prove that the Lord was working to keep them safe. His covenant being proclaimed proved that though they were sinners, he was their God and they were his people. And when the text says the joy of the Lord is their strength, That is the encouragement they're given by the priests and the leaders when they cry. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's saying that the fact that God delights in you and rejoices over you so that he would bring you back is to be your strength. Nothing you did, nothing that you did to make yourself right with God, the very fact that God delights in you enough to save you, bring you back, and be your God. That is to be their strength. Sadly, this great moment, and it was, it was a great moment. God's people were back and they were serving him, but it didn't last forever, and it wasn't meant to. Later, again, the people hit the snooze on God's word. They rebelled. The walls they worked so hard to repair were were torn down, and God's people, again, turned from God's word, like I said. And all of the short-lived blessings Israel had experienced were but a shadow pointing to a greater day of redemption that God would work. The covenant that they had read and explained pointed to this day when a far greater covenant would be made with God's people, an everlasting covenant. Those that stood and read these things pointed to a prophet from Israel from among them that was much greater than Moses, who would speak for God. And Deuteronomy says his people would hear his voice and obey him. It points to new hearts that God would put in his people, causing them to obey and delight in his laws. It points to the final sacrifice that would be sufficient because it was the sacrifice of God's only son, Jesus Christ. It pointed to God coming to dwell not in this temple made with human hands, but to come and dwell in the hearts of his people who would be built into a holy temple unto the Lord. It pointed forward to a protection not of walls that were built with stone, but a protection in the form of a seal that is the Holy Spirit that guards our hearts, causing us to persevere until that day when he calls us home. What I'm talking about here is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a far greater redemption than the people surrounding Nehemiah had experienced. Because over 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ entered the world. Though he was God, he entered the, the world in the form of a man. Not only a man, but in the form of a servant. Not just a lowly servant, the kind that washes your feet, the kind that would go and taste death for you. He stood before God, taking the judgment for the sins that you deserved upon his own back, upon his own body, so that you could be brought near as friends of God, so that you could be his people. And because it was done by the blood of Jesus, who is the everlasting God, this is a covenant that will last forever There's no more sacrifices that have to be made. Jesus sacrificed himself once and for all. And so we can be secure in Christ forever. This is the only way that God has made for sinners like you and I to be made right with God. And so the only response for us at hearing of this good news is to turn from vain glory that we've already seen in our own hearts and turn to the glory of God that we see in the face of Jesus Christ, the superior love and sacrifice and care and calling to redemption in Jesus. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, I urge you, turn from serving yourself to serving one who is superior in glory. And as a church, because of this good news, everything we do is founded in, it's directed by, it's, it has its foundation in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's what we call being gospel-centered, okay? You could call it, you could call it cross-centered, Christ-centered. You could, talk, you could use lots of different words, but the, the point is Jesus entered history, changing everything, and therefore everything we do is about Jesus. It's almost as if we have glasses on with little stickers that are crosses, in, and everything we look out and see, we see the cross in that. And so when I look and I see my neighbors, I see the cross, and I see I want to share Christ with these people because I want Jesus to be magnified and glorified through them, knowing the joy that is in Christ. When we open our Bibles, we're looking through cross-centered lenses to ask How does this point to the superior redemption that is found in Jesus Christ alone? When we sing, we sing songs that point our hearts to Jesus because he is our only hope. Christ and Christ alone can save us. Christ and Christ alone can sustain us, and he will. He will carry us on to glory. And so if we ever start preaching sermons that could receive hoorays or amens in Unitarian churches or in mosques, we're doing it wrong, and you need to tell us, preach Christ. Because if a Christless sermon is no sermon at all, if we don't point to the good news that is found in the work of Jesus Christ, then we're not pointing to anything at all. Because Jesus is the only way. He is the truth. He is the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through The Son. And so we preach Christ. We sing Christ. We pray Christ because we are, we delight in Christ. And so the gospel reveals God's glory in the face of Christ. It confronts our sin and it provides us with the remedy, the only remedy, that is Jesus Christ Himself. And so as a church, we keep God's Word at the center of all that we do, you and I every Sunday, every day during the week, we need to see God. We need to hear from him. And the way that we do that is right here. God speaks to us here. And not only that, but we need to be confronted by it because our hearts are often far from him. And we need to be confronted, not in a way where an angry father confronts his child and yells at him, which is not right, but in the way that we are confronted by someone who is far glorious And we desire to turn from serving ourselves to serving the one who is worthy. And lastly, we must continue to preach Christ. We must continue to point to the gospel that saves. Brothers and sisters, God is speaking to you every Sunday morning. Are you listening attentively? Let's pray. Father in heaven, It would be such a shame if we were lost in this world without direction, wandering, living based on whatever we felt like would be right at the time or what would be for our good. We thank you that you have revealed yourself through your word, so that we would know you, the creator of heaven and earth, our creator, and we could know your will. We could know your good news so that we would know how to be brought near to you through Jesus that we would know how to parent, we would know how to gather and worship you, we would know how to live, giving you glory. Father, I pray that as we go, we would rejoice in your glory as we sing your words. God, stir our hearts in worship for you. We pray this in Jesus' great name, amen.